welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you as we continue our series we've called Truth and Proof. This series is all about the truth that there is a God, and that God is the God of the Bible. Then we're going to go on to offer proof that supports the truth. Today, we have a special guest with us on the show, Doug Apple who is the manager of Wave 94 radio station in Tallahassee, Florida. Like a lot of people in Christian radio, Doug is a diligent student of the Bible, and he has thought deeply about his faith. This includes wanting to help others see that the Christian faith is a faith that will not only satisfy our souls, but also our minds. Today, Doug is going to help us take a detailed look at some of the essential observations that form the foundation of the inescapable truth of God's existence. But before we get into the discussion, Doug, would you like to take a couple of minutes and tell us about yourself? Well, I guess one interesting thing I can say about myself is that I love memorizing the Word. If you've ever read Psalm 119, it talks about somebody who's just in love with the Word of God. And I really am, though I'm not a Bible scholar and I never went to Bible school. But one thing I do is a lot of Bible memorization. In fact, uh, and I'm not the most skilled memorizer, but I have some skills. And I feel like the guy who's maybe been given the one or two talents for memorization. And I want to make sure that I am multiplying my talent, turning my two into a four, perhaps. And so starting back in 2008... I started memorizing one new Bible verse per weekday. And it doesn't sound that daunting, but imagine what you can do over a period of time. And so I've been doing that. And since 2008, I've now memorized the book of John, the book of Luke, the book of Matthew, Ephesians, Colossians. And right now I'm in the middle of the book of Mark. So I would recommend everybody give it a try. Memorize one new Bible verse per weekday. So I'd like to remind everyone the purpose of this series. We are learning how to defend the Christian faith. This defense is often termed apologetics. Now, sometimes people will get the mistaken impression that apologetics can only be done, or should only be done, by professional apologists. The truth is, however, that any sincere, mature Christian can become an effective apologist at least effective enough to demonstrate the two main points that are the concern of classical apologetics. The first point is the existence of God, and the second point is that God is the God of the Bible. We do this by demonstrating the truth of the New Testament, and therefore, 
the truth of Christianity. What do you think, Doug? I agree. It may take a little time and effort to prove God's existence, but every mature thinking normal person can, by the power of his mind and the operation of his senses, come to the valid conclusion that somehow something is bigger than he or she. And this is precisely what every culture has done over the last 6,000 plus years of recorded history. Just about every culture throughout history has come to the realization that someone or a bunch of someones is pulling the strings at a higher level than the level where we are. And with some deeper thought, people can not only know that there is a God, but also they can know a lot about the nature of that God. And when they've reached those two conclusions, hopefully they'll look in the direction of the real God. So at this point, let's again stop and briefly review what we've covered so far in the first four episodes of this series. First, truth is what corresponds to reality. In other words, truth corresponds to the way things really are. The way things really are is the same for all people, in all places, and for all belief systems. Whether or not someone knows the truth or believes the truth is not the point. We've also learned that truth is knowable and absolute. You've also covered the fact that the absoluteness of truth counters the claims of skepticism, agnosticism, relativism, and postmodernism. Those are four philosophies that deny the existence of absolute truth, but each of them is self-defeating. Each fails its own central premise. For instance, the skeptic says we must doubt the existence of absolute truth but does not doubt the absoluteness of their own position. Said differently, the skeptic is certain about doubt. And in your last episode of this series, you covered the fact that the existence of truth is supported by the most fundamental laws of logic, which include the law of identity, A is A, the law of non-contradiction, A is not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. The law of the excluded middle, either A or non-A. These laws of logic mean that opposites cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. This counters the idea of religious pluralism, the idea that all religious faiths are equally valid. The opposite of true is false. This unbreakable law applies to all aspects of the universe, including religion. So the belief that God exists and the belief that God does not exist are fundamentally at odds with one another. There is no third option. So one of those beliefs must be true and the other must be false. The same would be true of the distinction between monotheism and polytheism. Monotheists believe there is one and only one God. Polytheists believe there are many gods. Both views cannot be true. What we're building up to is a proof for the existence of God. And not just any quote-unquote God, but the real Jehovah God of the Bible, the God of reality. This real God started his revelation of himself with the words, In the beginning, God, in Genesis 1.1. In this verse, God in his wisdom, and possibly with a little grin of anticipation, gives us a hint as to how we actually can prove to ourselves and to others the reality of his existence. Even if we could not be sure of God's existence in any other way, and there are other ways, 
We can be sure of God's existence by observing His creation. But as I said, we must build up to that final conclusion. Before we can demonstrate that the God of the Bible is an objective reality, we must first demonstrate that reason, logic, and evidence support the need for some kind of a divine being. And as we've mentioned before, that need has been recognized by pagan philosophers as well as Christian theologians. In a previous episode, we mentioned that Aristotle was one of those philosophers who arrived at this conclusion simply by making keen observations of the world around him. In the order of famous Greek philosophers, there are three who are still household names even today. First came Socrates. Socrates' most famous student was Plato. After Plato, there came Aristotle. As you mentioned, Aristotle was a diligent observer of the world around him. He wrote extensively about the physical universe, and he, like some of the philosophers before him, saw that there was one thing that all beings have in common, and that is being itself. But when Plato and Aristotle and others speak of being, they're not speaking of existence, they're speaking of essence. Existence was implied, so mere existence was not their primary concern. Their primary concern was understanding what constituted the essence of things. And Aristotle's philosophy about the essence of things started with his work in physics. Said slightly differently, Aristotle began his thoughts about being and essence with his observations of the physical universe. He then shifted to an understanding of what is prior to the physical universe that gives being to everything else. Prior to was not a chronological designation. It didn't mean the passage of time, but rather the order in which things came to be. Aristotle's work along those lines went beyond or after his work in physics and became known as metaphysics. The focus of metaphysics is the nature of being and reality. Later, a new and separate philosophical discipline about the origin of reality followed along. The study of origin of reality came to be known as cosmology, the study of the origin of the universe and its laws. So one of the observations made by Aristotle was that the one constant he observed all about him was change. Aristotle noted two basic kinds of change, substantial change, the change in the substance of something, e.g. something comes to be, like a plant coming out of the ground from a seed, or something ceases to be, e.g. like dying. We would come up with a lot of other examples, but the point is that substantial change is reflected in birth and growth, or decay and death. In addition to substantial change, the other form of change Aristotle noticed he called accidental change, the change that occurs when something adheres to the substance of another substance, but is not inherent in that substance or essence. For example, when I learn something new, I have changed, but I am still of and possess the same essence, which you might call humanness, and I'm still the same substance, which we might call dugness. But despite me possessing the same essence and substance, I'm still different for having learned something. In other words, my essence and substance did not change, but one or more of my attributes, as the world perceives me, did change. So Aristotle noted that even as change marked everything in the world around him, with that change, some aspects of things stayed the same and some other aspects did not. A particularly dramatic example of change was death. 
In death, living beings undergo a fatal change resulting from the withdrawal of its life. But even through this change, one creature did not become another. A dead dog did not turn into a dead squirrel or a tree or anything else. But Aristotle recognized that the dead body did not remain that way for long. The thing that made it what it was, i.e. the power within it that accumulated and arranged the atoms and molecules of the universe into that particular body and held them together, is now gone. Consequently, the elements of the body quickly became disorganized. The form of the body, the dogness, didn't change. But the substance, what we call matter, the part left behind, did change. Aristotle's understanding of reality then involved two components, actuality, which doesn't change, and potentiality, which does change. So Aristotle's view of reality was that everything in creation is composed of both form, actuality, and matter, potentiality. The implication of this view is that the reality we perceive through our senses is constantly changing, but that the forms or essences of things did not. Aristotle didn't have modern science, but he had an exceptional mind and genius intellect. He likely saw that everything necessary to make an oak tree is contained in the acorn. If he had had a microscope, he might have been the first to accurately note that everything necessary for me to be me was contained in a single cell inside my mother. And when that cell divided into more cells, they grew and they differentiated and they matured and they became a unique human being unlike anyone else. Just the same process that got us all here. And that being will continue to change. The notion has been bounced around in medical circles for the last 80 years that every atom of the human body is changed out every seven years. This cannot really readily be proven, but we know with certainty that there is a constant balance being achieved between the dying cells and the new ones. The turnover rate for various body tissues has been calculated in the range of 3 years to 16 years, the brain being on the low end. I'm not sure if that's the good news or the bad news. And we know with certainty that the last changes in the human body happen very quickly. Those changes we call decomposition. It didn't take long for observers of nature to realize that when a tomato seed is planted, a tomato plant comes up. Ditto for every other kind of plant. What you sow is what you reap. If a pregnant dog and a pregnant cat are fed the same kind of food, the dog will have a puppy and the cat will have a kitten. It has nothing to do with the food that they eat, except the food provides each one with the building blocks necessary to make a kind of replication of the mother and father. So it would seem from Aristotle's model that the actual thing, the form, is in the seed or the acorn or the fertilized egg for the particular species. And the potential thing, the matter, is the elements of the earth and of the universe which are capable of becoming the substance of any type of plant or animal. So the question becomes, what is it in that seed or egg that drives the earthly elements to be arranged in such a way as to become a unique product? Well, we now know something that Aristotle didn't. We know about the genetic code, the code of life, if you will. We know that every living creature has a pre-programmed set of instructions present in its DNA. So in that tomato seed, or in that acorn, or in that pre-born human being, beginning with the most 
fundamental components of mass and energy and working outward to and through the DNA, there is the form of that thing, immaterial, unmeasurable, unseen, and in a certain sense, eternal. And that form has been. Not only is it specific and therefore has a unique essence, but also it operates in the material universe and therefore it exists. And we know some things that Aristotle didn't. We know about the underlying properties of atoms and subatomic particles through the standard model of particle physics, general relativity, and a system called quantum mechanics. For instance, we know that quarks interact by gluon exchange, that neutrons decay to protons through the weak interaction mediated by boson force carriers. We know that quarks and other subatomic particles spin. We've come to know a lot about the building blocks of physical reality. What we see through our modern observations is the proof of what Aristotle observed. There is constant change. When we reduce all physical matter to its smallest components, we see that even the quark changes in its characteristics and interaction, but it's still a quark. And nature testifies to what Aristotle believed. All around us is change, but something always remains the same and something else doesn't. So, what is it that always remains the same? It is the thing that is the actual, the form, not the thing that is the potential, the matter. This means there has to be something that accounts for the order and the arrangement of every physically existent thing, beginning with its most fundamental components. Plato and Aristotle called it form, and they knew it had to be something that is immaterial, they reasoned, that can't be seen, felt, or measured. And they knew this something cannot itself change and is therefore eternal. They knew this because if it came into being, it would have undergone change from non-being to being. Now, the listeners don't have to remember any of the particulars of this, but they do need to remember that the matter of the universe is the part that can change, whereas the forms of those individual things of the universe don't change. The matter, which is mass and energy, not only can change, but is constantly changing, even if the change is only motion. And here's the take-home message. All change requires a cause. That is such an important point. So I want to restate it. All change requires a cause. And we see change all about us. Yet we also see that despite this change, there is still something that accounts for the order and the arrangement of every physically existent thing, beginning with its most fundamental components. Plato and Aristotle called it form, and they knew it had to be something that is immaterial, that it couldn't be seen, felt, or measured. They also knew that something that ordered everything else could not itself change and would therefore be eternal. This concept of an eternal cause that causes order throughout the material creation while being immaterial itself brought them, and brings us, to God. We're not yet at that God being the God of the Bible, but we are firmly standing on the top stair of the staircase we've been climbing. So let's catch up to the stairs we've been ascending. We started out simply by acknowledging the existence of truth. Then we demonstrated that the fundamental laws of logic not only indisputably prove that truth exists, but those laws also prove that we exist. 
We then extended that awareness of our existence to the existence of a material universe, and we've taken this realization further to the fact that there must be an eternal cause that brings order to the material universe. Right. Aristotle is given credit for coining the term unmoved mover as one term for this eternal cause. The term prime mover was also used. Aristotle and Plato knew that the unmoved mover must be eternal because if it had come into being, it would have undergone change from non-being to being. The fact that Aristotle, with a little help from some of his Greek predecessors, could deduce all this truly is remarkable. Especially since Aristotle did not have the benefit of the technological and scientific information that we do today. Today we know far, far more about the fundamental components of the physical universe. As you alluded to briefly, we know there are two particles that cannot be reduced to anything smaller or more simple. We know there are four fundamental forces that simply are and cannot be reduced to anything more basic. And we know there are four force carriers, which behave as both particles and energy waves and have no mass. And with these basic components of all mass and energy, there's always directional motion, spin motion, interaction, and the potential for different relationships among them. There's always change, because what we and everything are made of is in motion. We also know that each thing of substance is uniquely different from every other thing of substance, and that it has its own unique form. Otherwise, everything would be the same thing. So we can start building from there to everything else. Each thing is formed by component parts put together by form, the determiner of each substance. We can now say that form is cause, matter is the changeable intermediary, and substance is effect. We use the words cause and effect in much the same way as we would say the producer and the product. Cause produces an effect. Every effect has a cause. Right. And when we look at the universe, we see a countless variety of forms, for there is countless numbers of different things. And we know a few other things. We know the universe is in motion. The Earth, the Sun, the Moon, planets, and galaxies are all moving in relation to one another. We know that things come into being, undergo change, and appear to go out of being, such as when a plant comes out of seed, grows, dies, and decays. Ancient thinkers like Aristotle saw the same things. So Aristotle saw the cause as the actualizer, or said differently, Aristotle saw that everything that comes to be is caused by something that already is. Or in other words, the actualizer transforms potentiality into actuality. The actualizer produces change. One very important change that the actualizer produces is changing non-being into being. And Aristotle saw that everything that comes into being is limited, only a finite part of all there is. He also saw the things that come into being as being contingent. The things that came into existence were dependent on something else for their existence. Therefore, they could exist or not exist. Aristotle saw all things that come into being as ultimately requiring a cause that is not dependent on any other cause, a cause that is not contingent. For if it was contingent, it would be dependent on something else for its existence. This brought Aristotle to another of his great contributions, the realization that an infinite regress of causes is impossible. 
there must be a starting point. There had to be a first actualizer to get the whole series started. Something that has to be is something that is necessary. Later philosophers and theologians would come to refer to this idea of the first actualizer as the, quote, necessary being. Christians, of course, agree with this line of reasoning, but we have an awareness that Aristotle did not. We know that the God of the Bible is that necessary being. We are blessed because we have not only the line of reasoning that was available to Aristotle, God's general revelation, but also we have God's special revelation in the Bible. Now, as we've said before, we know all of this can produce some head-scratching and even some headaches. But once Christians master these principles, it produces a Christian who can encounter the barrage of criticism aimed today at the Christian faith and emerge unscathed. Absolutely. There are real challenges and real reasons for studying apologetics. But as you've emphasized throughout this Truth and Proof series, being able to understand and defend Christianity is not the sole province of the clergy, the evangelists, the authors, the pastors, the scholars, or any other group of, quote, professional Christians. It's the province of every Christian. It's possible for all people who have the desire to understand these concepts and ideas. Paul told us this in the opening scripture we listened to from Romans 1.20. Paul said that the people who deny God's existence don't have any excuse for denying it because God has made his existence clear through his creation. Frankly, Aristotle proves Paul's point. Aristotle was able to come to the awareness that the nature of reality pointed to an unmoved mover, a first actualizer, a necessary being. So when we hear people deny the existence of God, we should also keep in mind what Jesus said to his listeners in John 8, 43-47. He said, Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Jesus' warning shows that as important as that is for adults to make an effort to understand something about apologetics, it's even more important for our kids and grandkids. Apologetics, as an area of study, isn't first and foremost a way to win arguments. It's a way to protect ourselves, our friends, and especially immature believers from a hostile world. Naturally, We also hope that an increased understanding of the foundations of our faith will also make us better witnesses to the world. Well, this sounds like a time we really need to go to God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of corporate confession because there are certainly times in all our lives when we have fallen short. The good news is that even when that happens, God has promised that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Prayer of Corporate Confession 
Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways. We stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition, that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.